Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This episode was originally recorded as a weekly live in the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition group on Facebook. If you'd like to join these lives, watch past replays, or get any of the written summaries I do for these weekly, please head to the link in the show notes, drop me a comment, I'm happy to help you out. Now, let's get on with the episode. Alright, looks like we are live. Here we go. So, today we're going to be talking about run programming. But before I really get rolling into that, I just want to make a couple notes based on me and some people I've been talking to over the past couple weeks about depression. So first, I'm, I'm not a therapist. If you can afford a therapist and you have depression, I highly recommend you speak with one. Um, exercise will help with to some degree, um, but not completely. And the best thing that can help with like depression and anxiety and all these things are human connection and talking about it, which is why I'm kind of going out on a limb here really fast before we get into the topic. I know quite a few athletes who struggle with this stuff, and I think the best thing we can do is just talk about it more to normalize it. So that's really it. If you have a group of, group of people who you can talk to about what's going on, if you have any mental struggles, then please do it. It will help. And the most insidious thing I find about depression is that it makes you hate all of the things that would actually help it get better. So if you're depressed, it's very likely you don't want to talk about it or go in the sun or exercise or eat, you know, healthy food even though all of that will help immensely. And there seems to be some rise in depression right now. Some of that might come from a bigger willingness to share struggles. A lot of it comes from increased feelings of loneliness and isolation. Because while we're connected to more people superficially, we're often connected to fewer people on a deep level. And then some of it just comes from chemical imbalances in the brain. My dad was on a variety of antidepressants for most of my adult life. And while I haven't decided to take them myself, I sure as hell don't judge anybody who does. Your brain runs on neurotransmitters, and if your levels of dopamine and serotonin are off, you can feel pretty shitty. And serotonin is more of a happy, relaxing chemical. If you're sad a lot, you might have some level of serotonin imbalance. Dopamine is a motivating chemical. So if you're not exactly sad, but just cannot find the motivation to do anything, you might have a dopamine issue. When I say I'm depressed, it's more dopamine related. Yesterday, I just couldn't force myself to do anything for the first half of the day. And that's kind of why a lot of stuff ended up slower in this group for the past 12 hours. So as it is, people who are highly driven tend to have some non-standard relationship with dopamine. Just like Alex Honnold, the free solo guy, almost certainly has some non-standard levels of adrenaline. A lot of people who are motivated enough to run 15 hours per week probably have some non-standard relationship with dopamine because doing the work to achieve those goals allows you to create more dopamine and feel a little better. And I know a lot of athletes in this community who struggle with depression and or eating disorders and both are highly correlated with dopamine production. And when you do something big, like a long race, you get a huge rise in dopamine. And the bigger the rise, the bigger the crash 
whenever you have a rise, you're going to have a corresponding crash. It's just like a drug withdrawal. So if you have some depression issues, don't be surprised if you have a corresponding crash after your race. It's normal, it should be somewhat expected. Anyway, I don't have much super insightful to say here. A shit day yesterday. And I know I've talked with a few people over the past couple of weeks who've also had some depressive struggles. And I figure being open about it is a good thing. So if you struggle with this stuff, you're not alone. Anyway, let's get on with today's topic. Choosing a good running program. First, do you, do you need a running program? And the answer is no. Like a structured program will absolutely help you make faster improvements to skill and running and race development, etc. But you don't need it. If all you want to do is just run, get out there on weekends and enjoy the hills with your friends, then do that. But for those who really want to make improvements and treat this like a sport, some programming can help. Second, if you're already following a program, you might wonder if you need a new one. And that's a little more complicated. And the answer is maybe. But I'd also like to recognize that the program is often not the problem. There are a ton of good, like free running programs out there. Chrissy Mel has a few in her book, Running Your First Ultra, which is about to come out with a second edition. And if you don't have a copy, I recommend it, especially the paperback of the new edition. I think it's going to it drop in a week or something. Um, David and Megan Roche have a ton on their website. Some work all play. They also do a lot of writing for Trailrunner magazine and put out programs there. So does Relentless Forward Commotion. So does Hal Kerner in his book, Field Guide to Ultra Running. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have gotten great results from using those programs. And that's just a few sources. There are definitely more. Don't get me wrong, there are a ton of terrible programs out there where you just see like these mild increases in mileage that don't do much for you. But there are a lot of good ones. But the program is rarely the problem. The two biggest reasons I see running programs fail for a lot of people have little to do with the actual run structuring. One is adaptability. Life happens. And most weeks, at least one of the athletes I coach needs to make a shift to his or her program. And while it doesn't need to be very stressful or rocket science, because it's, it's not, um, some people get very caught up on it. From something simple like, my rest day is supposed to be Monday, but I can't do anything on Tuesday. Well then let's just shift the rest day to Tuesday this week and move a workout to Monday. And to on, on a rotating schedule and can't follow the same schedule every week, Honestly, that might be great. A lot of people actually do better on a 10-day cycle, but most programs aren't written that way because that's not how life is for most people. To, I got slammed this week and won't be able to do that run. Cool. Probably skip it <laughs> or switch it out with another one if it's a really important workout. While all of your training matters, missing a workout every few weeks should not be that big of a deal. If it is, you're following, you're bluntly following a shitty program or trying to hit the level of a world champion. And even then I know a few world champions who still need to miss the occasional workout or shift their programming. That said, you can't just skip Wednesday every week and expect to get the same results as you would from following a structured program. It's not like we can completely shift it. We just need to adapt it to your life. And if your life is a busy and unpredictable as many people, then a coach could be helpful. Second, the other thing 
Well, the other reason why programs seem to struggle is support and accountability. Training can get lonely, and even with training partners and a supportive family, it can still feel lonely sometimes. And if you're in the middle of a big training week, say peak week, it can be easy to just skip a workout if you don't have a lot of support or sandbag it or not push yourself very hard. So while a good program can make a big difference, it's often not the program itself, it's how we follow it. And rather than slamming your wall, your head into a wall hunting for a program, the answer might be to like hire a coach or get a quick consultation or talk with somebody who has a bunch of experience so they can point you in a good direction. But all of that aside, like how do we identify a good program from a bad one? First off, it should start where you are. This is one of the things I really like about Chrissy Mel's book. She tells you what your base volume should be before even starting one of the programs. Because if you're currently running like 20 miles per week, you probably shouldn't start a program where the first week is a 40 mile week. It's a great way to get injured and just not a smart thing. If you have a long running background, or years of experience of something like a distance through hiker, then you might get away with it, but it's still not optimal. We need to start where you are and scale up accordingly. All right. It should also be progressive. It should not be the same thing week in and week out. It should build and increase over time, either or both in volume and intensity. You're not going to do the same thing. Thanks, Oscar. I appreciate that. You're not going to make progress by doing the same thing week in and week out. So week to week, your volume should either increase a little bit, we should get a little more intense, our speed sessions should get a little harder, so we keep pushing ourselves and making improvements. That said, a good program should also have deload weeks. Every few weeks, you should occasionally have a decrease in volume and or intensity, arguably both. The body improves through by signaling adaptations to happen. You put your body through some sort of stress, and then your body will create some adaptations so it's better at handling that stress the next time it comes around. It's easy to see in weightlifting, right? If you pick up something heavy and then put it back down, the next time you go to pick up that heavy thing, it hopefully feels lighter because your body has gotten stronger. This is a very similar thing with running. There needs to be consistency here and you don't want to go overboard. Um, if you picked up a very heavy barbell and then didn't do it for another five months, your body would treat it like a one-off. We need to have consistency. Same with running. And we also don't want to go overboard. We don't want to push so much stress that we get hurt. But the concept is called functional overreaching. You start at a baseline, you create some stress, then you actually get a little worse while you adapt to that stress, and then you get better and you have a new baseline. That baseline isn't permanent. As I said, if you don't use it, you lose it. But that's the concept. And you need to have enough time in your program to recover. Eventually, all of that stress starts to stack, and 24 to 48 hours is no longer enough time to recover. So every three or four weeks, you should have a week that drops in volume a little bit. So one week might be 20, the next week might be 25, the next week 30, and then you'll do a week at like 20 to 25 again to let the body recover. And then you'll go back to your building process. You're having a baseline, raising that baseline, and keep doing this like stepwise function. If there's a consistent, completely linear increase of either volume or intensity, you're much more likely to burn out. Then there's speed work. Your, problem, your program should include some speed work, and this can look 
very different depending on the person. Um, how much you need depends on you, your goals, your background, the rest of your programming, etc. If you have a good aerobic background and you want to go crush a 50k, then you might actually put a severe focus on speed work for the better part of like a month or two. So if you are already good at running long distances without too much effort, you might really focus on getting faster. This could be track repeats, this could be hill work, this could be sprint work, etc. If you have minimal aerobic background, but a big sprinting and lifting background, you might de-emphasize your speed work for a while and focus strongly on aerobic. But just because you're not emphasizing something doesn't mean you completely leave it out. I really like uh, David and Megan Roche's idea that you should always maintain some access to your higher gears. So again, the theme of this talk is basically if you don't use it, you lose it. So if you have a bunch of speed and then you only run low and slow for a few months, you'll likely have to rebuild your speed when it comes closer to race day. It comes back pretty quickly, but you could just maintain it along the way through the use of strides. I really like to include strides in programming, and I'll do at least a few in my runs throughout the week. These are a few rounds of like 20 to 30 second efforts within a longer run. You're not really pushing at a full sprint. You accelerate, let the legs open up, you hold the fast pace for 15 to 20 seconds, then decelerate. Shouldn't feel crushing, you actually feel pretty good. And kind of like dropping a fast car into gear and letting it go. If you need more speed work, then you might want to put more focus on intervals or tempo runs. But at the very least, use some strides to maintain the speed that you have. And then we also have hill work. Hill work is helpful for most people. It's not necessary, but it's very helpful. Going up hills requires a different muscular recruitment and strength than on flat grounds. This is one of the big differences between marathoners and like these ultra marathons that a lot of us run on the trails. Soon you can have an incredible engine, and as soon as you hit a trail or a hill, a lot of people's uh, heart rate just skyrockets, and it's because we're not used to that engagement. So practicing hills, we can actually see very fast improvement in that um, muscular engagement. So if you're trying to run ultras where you repeatedly go around a track, like the Jackpot Ultra uh, Festival or across the years or any of these, it's not a big concern. But for most people who are running on trails, you want to get some hill focus. This could be a treadmill. It could even be a Stairmaster if you really need it. But try to get something. If you truly can't, then double down on the speed work. We've shown that improvements in running economy from speed work has some transfer over to the hills, but specificity is preferred if, if we can make that happen. And finally, there should be a taper. You shouldn't have your biggest week and then go directly into your race. You should have at least a couple weeks of a like progressive deload so that you're able to like re-peak at your race. There isn't a perfect taper across the board, but there are some basics. It should probably be two to four weeks, depending on you and how long the race is and what your recovery ability is, right? You might, so one way to do this, you might hit your peak training week and then the following week will be like 75% of that volume. Next week might be 50 and then the final week might be 20 to 30, just kind of keeping the legs moving and having some shakeout runs. There's some people that do a four week taper, some that do two. If your race is longer, you probably want a slightly longer taper and then it depends on recovery. If you recover super fast, you can get away with a shorter taper. It's very dependent, but a taper should exist. About 
three weeks out from your race, most of the hay is already in the barn. You're not going to make a lot more adaptations. You really want to create a taper to let yourself recover completely by race day so that you can put all of that work to use. And then all of that kind of mentally brings me to the 10% rule. I do not like the 10% rule because it's actually not a rule. And nobody seems to have any idea where the hell it came from. Um, if you've never heard of it, it is the idea that you should try to increase your volume about 10% weekly over time. And for most people, it's way too conservative. If you're just starting out and you run like a 10 mile week, the next week you're going to run an 11, next week you run a 12. It will take years to even like build to base volume. On the other end, if you're very experienced and you just ran a 100 mile week, that would dictate your next week might be 110, which is probably not required or even necessary for most people. There's really no rule that dictates what your scaling should be. Um, if you know yourself very well, you probably have a pretty good idea of how quickly you can scale without getting injured. But this is the goal. The whole point of the 10% rule was to be too conservative to avoid injury. So if you're a little more recoverable, if you don't tend to struggle with injuries, we can get away with a lot more. Um, if your volume's already pretty high and you do have an injury risk, it might be a pretty good thing to at least think about. But a good rule or a good thought would be maybe add one mile per session as you build your base or add 15 minutes to each session as you build your base. It's really tough to say and nail down completely. But your primary focus should be like form and easy runs with the occasional stride work when building your base. All of that easy stuff will be a lot easier to recover from and you'll have a much lower injury risk so you can get so you can start to narrow in what your distances should be. And then some of the programs you'll see out there came from more of a CrossFit background. So I just want to mention them real fast. There is a like whole CrossFit endurance school. And if your goal is to finish an ultra, a CrossFit endurance style program can absolutely get you there. That said, they are, they are brutal and almost only focus on short uh, sessions of what is more or less speed work. You'll do like laps of 800 and laps of 200s, very little rest. And if your goal is to get, if your goal is to finish a race, that can work. If your goal is to get better at this sport over time and prioritize development over the years, they're not really the way to go. We want to get better at running short, we want to engage through hills, we want to do some targeted speed work, but it is not a really a long-term program. They have a short time horizon and a fairly low ceiling. So if you're a CrossFitter who wants to occasionally run an ultra, great. If you're an ultra runner who wants to get better at ultra running, they would not be my go-to. And most running programs should also include some level of strength training, but most of them don't. I'm about to release a fairly long guide on strength training in the next couple days. So if you want some details on how to do that, please check that out. But in short, most runners can benefit from varying degrees and amounts of strength training throughout the year. If your running program makes no room for strength training, you might consider adding some, even if you have to remove a bit of the running, especially earlier in your season. All right, if you have any questions, um, please post them in the chat. I'm gonna start adding like a question and answer section to the end of these. I have two this week from David Euler, and, but if you're watching live and you have a question, please pop it in the chat and I'll try to answer it before I close the live. 
So question number one was, if you're pacing to chase cutoffs, is there a best way to do that? I'm nervous if I leave 30 minutes of leeway, but then get nauseous or need a bio break, I'd use up that 30 minutes. So should I just leave more leeway? The answer is yeah, pretty much. This reminds me of a classmate in university. He was always chasing exactly 90%. And I went to the University of Arizona where there aren't pluses or minuses, so he was just trying to get the A. And he'd do things like answer nine out of 10 questions on a quiz. He'd only do 90% of an assignment, you know, all that stuff. And then he really messed up an assignment late in the year and had to get a perfect score on his final assignment and do a good amount of extra credit to maintain the A. And he actually pulled it off, but barely. And this is kind of the same idea here. You could pace in a way that just skates you under the cutoffs or provides you with a very small margin. But if you're able to pace a little faster, it will give you more leeway and a little more freedom in case something goes wrong. Because especially in longer races, we should almost expect that something's gonna go wrong. Expect a blister, expect a pole to break, like we should do some level of fear setting, getting ready for these races, and we should leave ourselves enough leeway so that we're not skating every cutoff. Um, you also want to know what's too fast though, right? that if you push yourself so hard that you burn out, you're going to struggle. So we wanna go just fast enough to give ourselves some leeway, but not so fast that you're feeling trucked in the later miles. We should remember that most cutoff times for ultras are in the range of like 18 to 19 minutes per mile, which is a, like a brisk walk on flat ground. It can be feel pretty hectic on hills, but it's not that fast. So if you don't go too hard on the ups and you pace yourself appropriately on the flats and downs, you should buy a little more leeway if your primary goal is to finish. And this also invites a conversation about training models and zones and all that that I will dive into deeper later. But for now, yes, buy yourself some more leeway. And next question was, I was thinking about the efficiency of training in cold versus warm versus hot. Like obviously it affects sweat rate, but does it make you tougher? And when it warms up, does it translate to better speed or comfort or like feeling that there's less effort? And Temperature thing is is tough. It is most people tend to be at their best right in the like 50 to 60 Fahrenheit range. And granted, there's huge individual differences here. For example, Jim Walmsley is a savage in the heat. I'm much better in the heat than I am in the cold. But there is a general rule that most people seem to do pretty well at 50 to 60. And then as you increase, like every 10 degrees, there seems to be a performance drop. There is not a lot of performance transfer from training in the cold. There is a lot of benefit to heat training, but there's not a lot of physical benefit to cold training. But there can be huge mental benefits. You get better at dealing with the cold. Also, cold exposure can actually provide lasting increases in dopamine, which can help with things like the whole depression discussion I started this off with. So there's not a lot of physical benefits, but there can definitely be some lasting mental perks of cold training. Just make sure you don't freeze or get frostbite or whatever. Um, anyway, that's all I have for this week. I don't see any more questions, so I'm going to get going, and I will be back next week with something else. Please keep an eye on the group. Again, I'm going to drop a strength training guide this week, and I believe there'll be an announcement of some sort in the next couple weeks, and I'll talk to you later. Have a good night. 
Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.